0: Today's program is brought to you by Firesider, a health tonic based on the traditional New England cure-all of raw apple cider vinegar and honey. For more information, visit firesider.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
1: Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from The Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Please take a moment to like the show on iTunes and reach out if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on social media, at thefoodballer. Today, joining me in the studio is uh, my friend and former employer, former shopmate, etc., David Vergona, who's the owner and head honcho at David Thomas Works. Uh, He's a general contractor here in New York City and has a ton of experience building restaurants, stores, uh, buildings, everything from simple cabinets to complete gut renovations. Uh, I think David has probably seen it all. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what that's like uh, to work in that space here in New York. Thanks, David.
2: Thank you for having me
1: so uh david i uh you know wanted to have you on the show um to to sort of you know talk about things people go to restaurants this is you know this network is about food and we talk a lot about restaurants and a lot about a lot about food um but not often i think do people think about what goes into actually making a space where you can do that and you know Sure, we eat at street carts where, you know, you're basically eating street off the, you know, food off the street. Um, but there's a lot that goes into making a restaurant and making it into a real place. Um, so how many how many restaurant and food spaces? You built the Brooklyn Kitchen for us. I know you worked on Foster Sundry and other sort of food prep stores, the Meat Hook, um, a lot of different places.
2: I don't know off the top of my head. I didn't do any research beforehand, but I think maybe about seven or eight. Yeah. Um, ones that are still around.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. Right. So restaurants open and close all the time. Right. So you, you see that stuff happen as a, as a contractor. I mean, we first met working on monkey town. Uh, actually we met before that, but I worked for you. I was your employee working on that job, uh, building monkey town. And I forget what that is now. I was by that block recently. It's something else, Yeah. but that wall press board that I remember nailing up is still there. Um, how did you, how did you become a, a contractor? Like, how did you, how did you get into Did you think that you were going to be a tradesperson growing up? You know, it's funny. A lot of people ask me that. And
2: I feel like I have that similar story to most people that I just needed something to do for some money. And I was young and I had this strange opportunity that presented itself when I was hanging out at a bar that I used to pick up work being a bouncer at and, um, I needed some day work. Someone said, "Well, would you like to do some construction?" And I thought, "Well, I'm sort of handy from living in when I was uh, a teenager. I lived in Minnesota, northern Minnesota." And I said, "Well, I'm sure, I'll check it out." So my first job was doing demolition and repairing sheetrock uh, for Robert De Niro. <laughs> Not directly for him, but for a contractor who was working on his apartment. And it was such a strange experience that uh, I accidentally never looked back.
1: Right. Um, And so, I mean, in in becoming that kind of person and becoming a general contractor, you really, you are a true generalist, right? I mean, at least in my experience. You are someone who can do sheetrock and do plumbing and do electrical and weld and do glass and cabinetry and fine finish work. I mean, sort of you name it, right? You do it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I sort of made it a point to try to check all the boxes. A, it got kind of boring to do just one thing. Not that there isn't something to be said about... You know, master of all trades, master of none. Right. But at the same time, in the world of building, everything's so comprehensive. I mean, you're talking here about restaurants. There's so many facets that go into this. You can't just know one thing because you're going to run into others. And I find that the people that stand in the room and fix the light switch, but, like, the heat goes off and they don't know what to do, they're stuck. So it right. helps us and behooves us to sort of know as much as possible.
1: And I think a restaurant is also represents something really interesting in, that's very different than, say, building an apartment. Or building a house where in a house, you know, it's certainly in the in this day and age, right? In the, in the age of Home Depot, which, I mean, when we were kids, there wasn't Home Depot. You had to go to the plumbing store for plumbing and you had to go to the lumber yard for lumber. And if you wanted, like, paint, you went to the paint store. In the age of sort of the DIY Home Depot era, you can sort of get everything you need at a Home Depot. And lots of people fix things themselves for building out a space like a restaurant only some of that stuff right the front of house is kind of like building an apartment or doing cabinetry and the back of house is all commercial and is totally different
2: yeah I mean I think there's something about the interface with all the tra- like the mechanical type trades in the back that separates it from everything else in an apartment building normally you have services and facilities that are either provided from you in the background for you in the background or by the building in some way you never think about it so four walls in a funeral sometimes, yeah. and, you know, you throw the walls up, you put some stuff on it. Somebody puts a little, you know, looks on Pinterest and sees some nice paint. Right. But that doesn't heat you, cool you, yeah. make sure it drains correctly, etc. Right. And those things for as many Home Depot stores as there are, the trial and error involved with that is so extreme. And the stakes in restaurants are so obviously, especially in New York are so extreme. I mean, there's money, time, people, reviews, you can't screw it up too many times
1: in theory, so. Sure. I mean, I I always find it interesting, and and I always find finish work to be very interesting to notice, um, because it's one of those things where, you know, you need a six-burner stove, right, in the kitchen to do a certain amount of production, to do a certain, you know, you need certain things. Do you need really fancy black glass tile in your bathroom, (laughs) right? I mean, like, I, you know, I, I think about this stuff a lot when I go to restaurants, and, you know, the fact is that You know, while it may, and and these are the intangibles, right, that affect those experiences you mentioned review, that affect that experience, if the bathroom is beautiful and if there's, you know, if there's flower, fresh flowers in the bathroom, those sorts of Mm. things affect your experience, but how much is that high-end finish really worth it at a certain point?
2: I mean, I spent a lot of time thinking about this as well. It reminds me of a time many years ago when I read a critique of the Michelin star system where they commented how, I believe it was Danielle or something, had an unfair advantage because their flower budget was so much that it helped enable them to secure that extra half a star to vaunt them into like the next level. Right. And so, being somebody who builds for people, you know, we encounter some interesting conundrums where budget, what people want for the budget, is important. And those front of the house black glass tiles that you referenced those are the most expensive part of the project, usually, or at least the composite. And I also wonder, could you shave it back to a degree where you could find a little bit of a better balance? But I think that the competition is so extreme here and so great, and there are so few things that differentiate people that designers usually who are engaged by these folks to help set them apart believe that it's the only way to separate you. And I'm not sure if that's true, but I think that the evidence isn't the contrary so unless you see someone else not do it it's hard to say
1: right That's true, right so it's a, it's a very good point and and then of course there's the other side of that coin where you know depending on what you're sort of going for i mean i sort of you know we're here sitting at Roberto's. i kind of can't imagine the bathroom at roberta's without stickers all over it right <laughs> i mean like if, if i walked in here tomorrow and suddenly it was all black glass tile i feel like that would somehow clash with the aesthetic and the, absolutely the but feeling of the place
2: there is something that to be said about Roberto's, which is magical in that it's one of the few places that got to maintain its aesthetic and its business rise above it yep whereas like the Mars bar for example you think the same thing but Mars bar is gone right sure and there aren't really any places anymore like this that can thrive quite like this because the I hate saying it this way but the non just say I don't know what kind of culture some people call them yuppies sometimes some (laughs) call them other things but the people usually that come in and gentrify and have more money don't unless there's some cachet already Really are looking for that Bobo, that sort of bohemian bourgeois look, which might pretend to be sort of downscale minimalist, but it costs a lot to achieve, both in resource, money, and time.
0: Right,
1: which is right. I mean, there's there's the old thing about you know you you can either things can either be done right or done cheap or done fast. Fast couldn't cheap pick any two. Yeah, exactly. So that's the you know, Um, and and I have to imagine that's a conversation you have day in and day out with your clients.
2: Absolutely. I mean, sometimes it's not even a conversation. It's just something that exists and people ignore, us included in the past. But it's something you can't get get around. There's another adage, which is caulk, putty, and paint. Make it what it ain't. And that only exists in so much as a photo shoot. But people sure. treat spaces
1: sometimes like, well whatever, it's an old heater and it'll still work. And I mean, look, when we met, I, uh, w- when we shared shop space, I was making scenery, which was exactly that, right? It was not made, to, it was made to look good for a very short amount of time, you know, fashion shows and things like that. It didn't have to last. It last; it was like a, an hour long. Like, it just needed to be good for an hour. Yep. Whereas you're building stuff that hopefully, you know, in many cases is going to last for years. Agreed.
2: Many, many years ago, we built a, I cl- uh, worked for a company that built a club and they were such a bad company. Oh my goodness, they, they were a huge union, half union, half regular company, and they got this job building a club called Speed. I think it was on 39th Street. And I'm that sure us as like carpenters, Mars gar, Mars yeah, bar, right? And us as carpenters were in charge of sort of doing some of the decorating. And they had this thing where they had a train blowing through the wall, which was the DJ booth, and it was all actually made out of sculpted styrofoam yeah, blocks. In
1: that, in that place once.
2: Yeah, it was all, and it was such garbage that. I think people started climbing on it when they were high. And about two months later, they had to redo the whole thing. So you sort of get what you pay for in the end one way or another.
1: Yeah. So uh, let's turn the conversation uh, a little bit towards towards food, right? I mean, you're in an industry where people are physically working very hard. Um, sometimes, especially like on a day like today, I bet you have probably have guys who are working on a roof. It's yeah. 85 degrees plus the heat coming off the roof. Um, you know, how do, how does food play into what you guys do is there you know are there particular foods that you people do eat on the job that you like to eat on the job things that you sort of stay away from um how do you guys address it
2: that's a great question i feel like it has a couple different answers number one as you know in most construction world we work with different um you know a lot of time different immigrants who come from different places and they have pensions for their particular sort of home food
1: right but you're also then working all over the city, so yeah, exactly. you might be in different yep. neighborhoods. And...
2: So one of, the irony, or one of the interesting things about that is, so for example, if people come from Latin America or South America and may not have access to that, there does seem to be like the catch-all food. Everybody eats cheap Chinese takeout and <laughs> thinks it's amazing. <laughs> and I think it's a combination between the fact that it's the cheapest food you can buy. Right. Especially when we're working in sort of upscale neighborhoods. Right. It's fairly portable and you can save it for later and it doesn't immediately go bad hmm. or turn into something that's inedible. Right. So, for example, on a day like today, when it's really hot, you're not that hungry, but you need the energy. So a lot of times, you know, we'll take lunch, wait a couple hours and eat some more, and you can do that with Chinese food. Right. No, in a way a very, that you
1: can do with other things. It's a really, it's a really good point. I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that. I, You know, I was just looking at the... I just had, had read a metric the other day that, you know, in the United States as a whole, there are, I think... Two or three times as many Chinese restaurants as there are McDonald's, <laughs> and so you know, think, thinking about that, right? And, and your point is, your point is well taken. Like you know, in if you're working on the Upper West Side, there's cheap Chinese takeout, and if you're working in Bushwick, there's cheap Chinese takeout, and if you're, you know, it also
2: transcends language.
1: Right, <laughs> a lot of sure. people
2: don't speak English and speak many different languages. They look at the board; it has a little picture. Once they identify what it is, you know, when someone takes a lunch order it's not hard to kind of remember that simple word as opposed to having to dictate, I'd like a sandwich with this, without that, this, that, the other thing. Yeah. Um, the other thing that is amazing for me and makes me very lucky is a couple of the guys that have, um, take uh food that they take from home. I get to eat food periodically when they give me some that their wives or other folks make. That's eating at the best, you know, right. I hate using this word, but ethnic restaurant, or whatever that flavor sure. is around. Sure. And over the years, everywhere from folks from Africa,
1: Malaysia, all the Latin countries. So you you managed to sort of have this incredible, like, uh, breadth of knowledge about immigrant food because they're bringing it to work. Absolutely. Or at least the taste of it. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, that's what I mean. I mean, you know, the taste is the knowledge, right?
2: For sure. And that's something that we normally wouldn't get to normally right. in a... General, week much or, less.
1: or in construction in another place, right? I mean, in, in construction in, in another city, you know, on a, on a construction crew, the roach coach might pull up, and everybody's eating the same, you know, the same yeah. crap. You know, it's a, it, it, it's interesting to be doing that in the city and sort of the, the bouncing around of it. I mean, you know, we feel, you know, we we have a we have a babysitter and nanny for our for our daughter, and we'll had one for our daughter, and now have one for our young son, who is Nepalese and you know she very graciously you know for a birthday or whatever will bring us a plate of dumplings and they're incredible and I you know I've been trying to get her to actually come to the Brooklyn kitchen and teach a class on Nepalese momos cuz they're awesome they're so good yeah and that's right from the source yeah and I you know and I and I visited her kitchen and you know seeing the way that that people people cook in those communities too is fascinating to me and I don't know if that's something that you end up seeing as you're sort of doing work I assume a lot of the work you're doing is in wealthier For wealthier people But you know Going into her apartment She had strips of uh, Strips of cross cut Like pork ribs Drying In her kitchen That she dries them and then freezes them and then cooks with them later. But she had them sort of hung on strings all over the. And I know as I, I walked in, I said, "What, what is it?" And she explained to me the process where I'd never seen anything. You know, they weren't really curing; they were just sort of drying. It wasn't like they were salted. They, you know, just to dry them out. And it was a texture issue; It was to get some of the water out yeah. before cooking with them, and just the texture. But when they're cooked, is you know, part of the part of the food and part of what they're making.
2: Absolutely. I noticed when I was just peeking at your questions that we'll get to later. When I actually growing up. I um, experienced a little bit of that because, like you said, now most of our clients have a little more money just to support the fact that we have different sort of overhead. But when I am growing up in a pretty poor area, I got to see most of that stuff firsthand. Um, and here, even here, periodically, depending.
1: We're uh, let's take a we'll take a short break and hear from uh, Firesider, our sponsor today uh, here on Feast Your Ears. And when we come back, uh, we'll uh, we'll touch on uh, your uh, your growing up in uh, in Arizona and in. Uh, In uh, Minnesota as well. And this is called Track for Thing by
0: Soy. Today's program was brought to you by Fire Cider. Did your grandmother ever tell you to drink raw apple cider vinegar? It's good advice and more common than you may think. For generations of New Englanders, a tot of vinegar was a morning ritual. Taken daily, a tablespoon of unfiltered apple cider vinegar can help support immune function and digestive functions. To the base of certified organic apple cider vinegar, firesider cider added whole raw certified organic oranges, lemons, onions, ginger, horseradish, habanero pepper, garlic, and turmeric. They let this mixture steep for six weeks at room temperature to preserve the living vinegar culture and delicate flavors of the ingredients. Lastly, they blend a generous helping of raw wildflower honey into the mix. The result is potent but balanced, offering layers of sweet, tart, and spice. Firesider tastes great on its own or as an addition to tea juice or salad Firesider ships direct from their online store and is available at over 500 locations nationwide use their store locator to find one near you and ask for a free sample for more information visit firesider.com
1: welcome back to feast your ears i'm harry rosenblum from the brooklyn kitchen uh, I will mention that if you are in Brooklyn, we have Firesider uh, today's sponsor. We do sell their product at the Brooklyn Kitchen. I love it. I uh, highly recommend uh, checking it out. It is, it is in fact delicious and spicy and a great pick me up. Uh, I'm in the process of writing a book about vinegar and, uh, have a piece about fire cider as, uh, what, you know, what they talk about as a sort of historic, um, new England, uh, sort of cure all. Um, it definitely, it'll definitely wake you up, get you going in the morning, make you feel better. If you have a cold, clear out your sinuses, uh, and probably a whole host of other things. So, uh, check it out. Uh, Today I'm speaking with David Vergona uh, in the studio, who is a general contractor here in New York City, um, about, you know, contracting food, uh, you know, a lot of things. We were talking before the break about the vast variety of different ethnic cuisines David's been able to try because of the places his crew is from. Um, when I used to work on David's crew, I found it amazing the variety of, of people and cultures represented there. Um, so right now, just to go through it, so on your, on your sort of regular team of people, you have uh, Ivory Coast, right? Guatemala. Where else? Honduras. Mexico. Sometimes
2: one from China. Actually, mainland China. Um,
1: Argentina. Argentina.
2: Argentina. Some Western Europeaners who come in and out
1: yeah it's an, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting it's a really it 's an interesting mix it's a, it, and and you were talking before the break about there being certain like language barriers and it 's very interesting to watch a group of group of men i mean it 's all men work together who really don 't speak the same language except that they all in many cases you know if they know how to hang sheetrock, they know how to hang sheetrock. and so yeah. that becomes the the action becomes the common language
2: absolutely. It's also interesting to see how they learn to communicate in another language, which is sometimes nonverbal, sometimes is verbal in maybe their own native languages, but they use it in a strange... It's not even like automatopoeia or esperanto or one of those things. It's, they kind of use the words as hammers. <laughs> I don't know how else to explain it metaphorically. <laughs>
1: I so, like that, though. It's a metaphor.
2: I mean, speaking of the broken kitchen, I remember once there was a guy who worked with us for a long time <clears throat> from Malaysia, And I think he might have been born... I think he had a strange experience. I think he was born in China, grew up in Malaysia, spent a lot of time in the Philippines and in um, New Zealand. So a lot of people in the Philippines speak Spanish because of the missionaries. And he spoke the strangest amalgam of languages and a language that was sort of piecemeal. He would speak to the guys in Spanish.
1: It It was like a different Spanish. It was
2: a totally different... you know dialecticized Spanish, and they had all different kinds of, you know, words for things, so they would invent words, you know, so if right. he didn't know the word for sheetrock, and the sheetrock they would call it something else, and I was always <laughs> kind of stunned, but it got, it got done, you know, yeah. everyone just looks I mean, up, I guess that,
1: that's an interesting, like, you know, that's an interesting idea about learning language, right? You think of, you know, kids come up with words, for things that are sort of nonsense, um, you know, when I was a little kid, my mom told me that when I was a little, I don't remember this—that the color blue I called pleh. Mm-hmm. and blueberries were called pleti, right? And it? horses were called footy <laughs> But you know, but but that wasn't—that's not just a kid thing, right? It's the way the well, human brain works, and nonsense. so obviously these guys are coming up with words as, a, and they're you know but creating communication. Sure, it's only
2: nonsense until a couple people connect with it, and yep. it's not nonsense anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, back to the food thing, it's funny how it's whatever it takes to combine everybody and to make everybody feel connected, Right. whether it's hanging sheetrock or sharing lunch. Yeah. In fact, sharing lunch is probably the area that most impacts me at work, speaking of food, because there's also a lot of prejudices in the world, and I experience a lot of that in work. A lot of these folks have preconceived ideas about who each other are, mm. and there can be a lot of discomfort at first. And what's amazing is it's usually around lunch, over time, that people begin to accept each other, learn about each other, and connect. And it's over, whatever, sharing Chinese food, or someone's wife Sitting on an
1: overturned five-gallon bucket, probably. Somebody's wife
2: made chile de and somebody else's wife made something else, and they just mix them together. And I don't know, it's touching. Yeah,
1: it's, it's cool. You mentioned, you mentioned uh, the food when you were growing up and having seen different ways that people prepare food. So um, you spent a, a great deal of your early childhood right, in, mm-hmm. in Arizona um, near a reservation, right? So
2: when I was very young, I lived in Sells, Arizona, which is an area on the American Indian Reservation. And I don't have great memories of that. It's mostly through photographs. And then my parents moved to Nogales, which is on the Mexican border. And that I obviously have a lot of memories about and being in that, and basically, Nogales was split by the border; didn't grow up on either side.
1: So there's does Nogales. the city itself actually exist on both sides? It
2: does. Nogales, huh. Sonora, which is South Nogales, and yep, sure. Nogales. So being a town that wasn't invented later, after the <coughs> sorry division.
1: Right. It, it existed before there. Before that was a state, and before there was a yeah. line, and all that stuff.
2: And it has a very homogeneous culture, <laughs> especially in food. So speaking of houses, like I would go to my father was a physician, my father's nurse's house, and she lived on the American side, and her husband had gotten caught for doing something really silly when he was younger and couldn't come back, so he lived on the other side. <laughs> like
0: the other side of the side. Like, I think They town, called really called the other
2: side of the line. Yeah. And, for example, both of their houses, like they would have different things hanging up, drying from chilies to pork fat to other things, and the, the thing I most remember is this funny sound Sounded like odd intermittent clapping. And it was the older women getting together making tortillas and slapping them together against their hands before they put them on the grill. And it's something that being that I was mostly raised by them when well, my parents worked, as de facto nannies, sort of I um I got comfortable with. And got to eat, of course. Right.
1: Delicious in that case it was Mexican food. Yeah. So then what did so And then growing up, what did your parents, what did your parents cook?
2: So my mom... I mean, you
1: were, you're obviously eating that food because that's where you lived, but...
2: Right. My mom, so my dad is Italian by nationality, I guess, by descent. Um, So my mom liked to cook Italian food. And I think because of that, and the fact that her parents are Mediterranean as well, from Armenian Syria, and um, a couple of little places, she sort of just, started to work on all those mediterranean influenced recipes and so i can't remember anything particular that stands out in my mind i just remember that growing up i always felt that my mom made the best food right and all most of the other parents didn't and that really got showcased when we moved to minnesota when i was 12 which is a hard time to move anyway right for a kid sure my parents were considered extremely odd because they used spices. So garlic, cumin, <laughs> coriander, <laughs> things that people just they couldn't quite understand. Right. You know, salt and pepper. What else would you need? Right. And I don't remember hardly anyone ever coming over for dinner itself. They would come over and play and do other things, but very few people came over and ate food. So and no st-
1: stovetop stuffing in your house.
2: Oh my goodness. Are you <laughs> kidding me? My, we didn't even have a microwave. My dad thought that they gave microwaves off and that that wasn't good for kids. So. We bought a new house at one point, and we had a microwave, and I remember him, he was not very handy, taking all day to remove it, and then putting it outside in a safe spot. (laughs) 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 Which is one of my favorite memories.
1: Do you have any memories um, of your childhood? I mean, I I sort of, I think about my childhood and going over and eating dinner at other people's houses. Do you have any memories of of that? And were there things you wished that you had? Like... did anything ever come out of a microwave in your childhood at somebody else's house playing and you were like, man, I wish we had a microwave is something you missed. No,
2: strangely enough, my parents were very good at indoctrinating us into those things. So we had, for example, wheat germ apparently where I grew up was what you put in cereal as opposed to sugar. Right. I thought that was totally normal because my mom would just add extra wheat germ. And it wasn't until I was, I think seven that I realized that carob isn't chocolate. Now, That gave me years of therapy, <laughs> but of course these days I actually enjoy carbs. so I'm happy that they sort of instilled that one at an early age. But no, I don't feel like I missed anything per se, I just realized that there was a divide between the people who like to cook and the people who don't. And I think what strikes me now is food has become very popular, both in terms of a real way and perhaps maybe a little less of a real way, um, but it's around. And so I think people of a younger generation sort of take for granted that everyone knows about food, but when we were kids and obviously back before, food was a method to survive. Usually it was just, especially in northern Minnesota, like you ate because you had to get energy. It's cold.
1: Yeah.
2: People didn't really concentrate much on it. And the fact that my family gave it time and interest in the fact that we had a living room that we never went into, we sat in the kitchen, you know, was a little more of an old world, at least in our culture, European style. Right. And I think that that makes a difference. Or yeah, made a
1: difference. Definitely. I was curious to, uh, to go back to contracting for a minute and uh, ask you about, um, do, you have a, do you have a favorite project? Like, do you look back, or are you working on something now that you feel like this is, like, one of the greatest things that you've ever built as a contractor? I mean, you know, or challenges that were met, or...
2: I think perhaps one of my favorite things I ever got to work on and the the word contractor is sort of funny because I think of us as, as builders more, a contractor intimates something different. But I got invited to go to Ireland, to north of Ireland, or actually it was in the Republic, but the northern part of the Republic, uh, for a summer to learn how to work on stone walls and do some other miscellaneous things, which wound up including the most cursory of blacksmithing courses I've ever had but it lasted for a while and that was probably the most engaged and fulfilling experience I've ever had when it comes to building because I got to work around some older crafts folks who have been doing this forever in a place where it stood longer not that any place I'd ever been but where I actually got to actively do something with it right And so the fact that the house had been built in the 1600s, I've seen houses that are older, but I've never gotten to touch them. I've never gotten to actually take stone out and put it back. And I've also never experienced anything built on the sea. And the irony is is that here's a house that stood the test of time that people now in Ireland like to build with sheetrock and other materials, which is fine, but make fun of. And yet, if you put a car outside the seawall in one season, it'd be reduced to dust. Right. So that was... One of my more um, lucky and profound experiences. In terms of locally, honestly, they all have different aspects that are cool. Sure. I mean, I'll relate to The Broken Kitchen. Like That was sort of a fun adventure because it was such a strange... I don't even know what to call it. We'd call it half disaster. Yeah. You know, when you, <laughs> we, sure. when we first saw the building, it was <laughs> like... The building was in such crazy shape.
1: Yeah, it still is. I mean, it's a weird, well, it's, it's a weird I mean, building. It's a really And the fact that we got property.
2: to kind of wrangle it into something usable. Yeah. I mean, I remember you remember this. We were in the back and ripped out some BX. Yep. It was ungrounded. Yep. And it lit on fire. Yeah. I mean,
1: you know, those things, they make your life brighter. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, it's, a, it's the sum of its parts, right? That's Absolutely. What, it's that kind of thing. Well, we're uh, we're out of time today on Feast Your Ears, but thank you, David, for uh, for joining me. Um, it's been it's been fun to to talk about and and sort of think about. You know, I, I would encourage uh, listeners. You know, next time you see a bunch of guys sitting outside of an active construction site eating Chinese food, um, you know, think about the fact that they're all bonding over that, right? And that's a very New York thing, and it's one of the great things about New York. and you know, it's you know the Chinese food is bringing us all together. So next time you open up a Chinese <laughs> takeout container, think about how it can bring you together with with your fellow man. Excellent. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. Big thank you to Kristen Baylor, my producer here, and David Tadishor for engineering. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at HeritageRadioNetwork.org and also on iTunes. And you can follow me on Instagram at the Food Baller. Talk to you next week.